Well, good morning, church. You excited to be here today? Good. It's 1045. You're all the rowdy crowd. We got to get rolling. So it's a big day because the big game tonight. Any Kansas City fans in the room? I see you right there with that hand raised. How about you Eagles fans? Chip and dip fans in the room? Yes. Always the winner. I was really hoping I was going to be cheering on tonight, my Bills Mafia crew, but I'll have to settle for the Eagles tonight. But I hope it's a, a wonderful time with friends and family and so forth. My wife and I are hosting the high schoolers at our house tonight because we're gluttons for punishment. So we're looking to have them all there with us this evening. Uh, my name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. And um, I consider it a great honor to be able to come and spend a little time together this morning opening up God's word and allowing it to teach us and to train us and to form us and to cause it to work in our life to become the people that God wants us to be. As you may know, we've been in the middle of a sermon series called Blueprints, and we've been taking a step back to ask this really big question. Like, how does someone build a life that looks like Christ? How do we build a life that looks like Jesus? How do we build a foundation that is laid upon him and him alone? So for the past few weeks, you've been hearing all kinds of really great messages about how this works. And we believe that God has given us a blueprint for how to do this by the authority of his word and through the scriptures to be able to construct a framework, the kind of framework that can hold the weight of the world that we experience each and every day, day in and day out. And so, so far during this series, we have taken a look at these blueprints, uh, mostly kind of in terms of building from the ground up. But today I wanna to talk about how the truth is the kind of building that God does within our life and the life of a Christian is more of a remodel than it is a fresh build. Like it's more of a renovation than it is new construction. So my wife and I are about to celebrate 14 years of marriage. And, and she did a good job sticking with me, 14 years. And after 14 years of marriage, we have remodeled three different homes together. Uh, so that's how you test a marriage. And so three different times we have taken a home and we have done all kinds of changes. There's actually never been a home that we have lived in that we have not like changed flooring, scraped ceilings and painted walls, opened up door frames. Uh, but we've not had a challenge like the one that we are living in right now um, because we had so much that we wanted to do to it. Now, we found this home because my wife was searching online and she came across it one day and said, hey, listen, I want you to go see this house with me. It's got some acreage to it. There's trees. Like, we should go see it and just see if this could be kind of the next place for us. And I was like, I don't know. We looked at the pictures online. You know how sometimes the pictures online just don't do a place justice? And we looked at it online. I'm like, there's furniture everywhere. There was wallpaper on the walls and fixtures that had to be changed. I was like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not feeling it. She's like, well, we're going to go see it. I'm like, okay. So we drove over there and we got in the driveway. And as the mature, supportive husband, I didn't even get out of the car. I'm like, I'll just stay here. Just tell me about it. So she goes inside and she walks around and she comes back out to the car and she's like, listen, I really want you to get out and come look at it because, because I can see what this thing could be and I love it. Like I can see past everything. I'm not just seeing for what it is. I'm seeing it for what it could be and I'm like, okay. And so I go inside and we walk around and sure enough, it took some time but I too began to have the vision that she had for this house. Like we could do this and we could make this happen and we could invest some money here and do all this stuff and if we did, we could make this home for someone else our home. If we're able to see with a little TLC what could be and not just what is. And here's the truth for all of us here this morning. Every one of us, every one of our lives is a remodel. It's a work in process. We are all broken, selfish, angry, lost, and sinful people, full stop. There's not one of us in the room this morning that are exempt from this. We live in a broken and sinful neighborhood. 
all around us, the world that we exist in. And the world around us does not even take notice of what's going on. But here's the good news this morning. God has taken notice. He does see what's happening. His heart does break for a broken world. He sees you. He sees me. He sees all of us. He knows every deep, dark secret that you hold in your heart. He knows that our lives have holes in the floor, leaks in the ceiling, and chipped paint. But the Bible says that our God is a remodeling God. He is the one who loves to remodel. He has eyes to be able to see not just what is, but he's able to see what could be. He knows the potential in every single person. He knows the kind of man that you could be. He knows the kind of woman that you could be. He knows the kind of husband you could be, the wife you could be, the son, the daughter, the friend. And across the board, he sees the potential in every single one of us to the point where he saw fit to send his son to do the work in our life if we but give him access to every part of who we are. God loves a good remodel. God loves it. The Apostle Paul, writing in the scriptures, he writes a letter to the early church in a place called Corinth. Now, Paul is well aware of the kind of work that God can do in a broken life since he himself underwent one of the most extensive remodels in all of scripture. You have this man who at first was set on destroying the Christian movement as a Pharisee named Saul. He has an encounter with God. His name is changed to Paul. And then he goes on to write the majority of the New Testament. Pretty big change. Tearing up the floor, scraping the walls, you name it, it all happened in Paul's life. So he offers for us a blueprint for a transformed, remodeled, renovated life. Because he knows it well. So here's what he says to those in the early church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this. You might be familiar with it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Because if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new things have come. Paul offers a strong word here and he says it very specific. He says, if any man or woman is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ. This is a conditional statement. It's not simply assumed. In fact, the very reason for the dilapidated state that we find ourselves in is that many of us, we are not in Christ the way that Paul is talking about this. If any man is in Christ, then they are a new creation. But the key is being in Christ. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here for in is the Greek word en. <laughs> E-N. And this Greek word, when you translate it to English, it literally means in. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a good day. But when Paul writes this, the, the actual kind of context of the word is much deeper than that. What Paul is actually saying specifically is that to be in Christ means to be found in the realm of, under the rule and reign of, to be inside of, to operate within. Paul says, that's what I'm talking about for those who are found in Christ. It reminds me of when I was a kid, Maybe you had these things too. There were these little capsules that you could get. And on the inside of the capsules was a little sponge animal. Remember these things? You could buy like 100 of them for like $2. And I, I used to get some of these sometimes. And it was, 
instructions on the, the package were very clear. It was like, when you get home, you take these little capsules, you get some warm water, and you place the capsule in the warm water. And if you let it sit there, you have to be patient, which every kid is so good at being patient, and every adult is so good at being patient. We put it in the water, and if you wait long enough, eventually the capsule will dissolve, and boom, the sponge animal will come to life. Squids and giraffes and rhinoceros and all of the giraffes, giraffi, I don't know, multiple giraffe, come to life. And so that's what you'd do. You'd wait, and you'd put the thing in the water, and then that would happen. But as a kid, I was like, what's all the business of having to wait on all this? Who needs warm water? So I was like, I'll, I'll just grab the capsule, I'll grab each end, and I'll just open up, and we'll bypass all the stuff in between. But if you ever did this as a kid, it didn't work. Because you'd pull it apart, and the sponge little animal would be all wrinkled up, and you still couldn't tell what it is anyway. you got to put it in the water in the end still. This is what Paul's talking about. If any man or woman is in Christ, submerged in Christ, covered in Christ, operating in Christ, then they are a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. You see, Jesus, God's work in our lives, they are a remodeling God. This is what they do. And this morning, here's where we have to begin. Before we say anything else, we must address this big if in the room. If anyone is in Christ. So before we go any further, here's the question. Are you in Christ? Are you submitted to him? Are you surrendered to him? Are you, as the scriptures say, abiding in him and him abiding in you? This is the prerequisite for a remodeled life. We must be found in Christ, and in so doing, we become the new creation. And here's what 2 Corinthians says. Because of that, then, the old passes away and the new arrives. The remodeling process in our lives that only God can do and by the presence of the Spirit, it eliminates all of the old and unhealthy ways of living. And it introduces into our life all of the new and better ways of living. I want to be very clear this morning. When we place our faith, hope, and trust in Christ, our lives should change. It's a byproduct of placing our faith in Jesus. It is a byproduct of being found in Christ. You see, God is not interested in enabling and continuing our selfish, broken, and disobedient patterns. He has no interest in that. His desire is transformation. His desire is renovation. This is why Paul writes this to the early church. Don't be mistaken. When we are found in Christ, the old things pass away and the new things come. This life renovation that God does in us, it follows the blueprints of the scriptures. It's been laid out for us long ago, but it requires something very important, a submission to God's work in our lives. Listen, I've been in the church for a long time. I've met a lot of people who come to church on Sunday morning but have never submitted their lives to Jesus. I've seen a lot of dysfunction and much of that dysfunction can be solved with one thing, submission to Jesus. Not running your life on your own but instead allowing Jesus to do the hard work of taking the old and replacing it with the new. So renovation involves the first thing, removal of sin. Removal of sin. 
the greatest threat to us building a foundation for life and experiencing the full life that is offered to us in Jesus is this, sin. It is the rot of the soul. It destroys our relationship with God. It distorts our relationship with others. It wrecks our relationships with ourselves and it perverts our connection to creation itself. It's what sin does. And for many of us, it's a part of our lives and the only option is for it to be exposed and to be removed, period. When my wife and I started the renovation on our current home, one of the greatest needs that we saw when we walked into the house very beginning was our kitchen. So there was so much potential there. The rooms were, were big, they were wonderful, the land was beautiful, but the kitchen clearly needed some work. Because if you walked into the kitchen, you had a marble in your hands and you put it down, that marble would travel across to the other side. There was a dip in one area and it kind of sagged in another area. And so I remember from the very beginning, my wife was like, we got to address the kitchen. Like we gotta take it down to the studs, start all over. We gotta go all the way to the, the very bottom. But I was like, yes, but, but also, maybe there's other ways to remedy the issue. And she'd be like, like what? I'm like, well, what if we just you know, had jacks under the kitchen and we just lifted the floor back up to it was level and we just left it there? Because I knew the thing she was talking about was this kind of thing, cha-ching. <laughs> the more we did, the more it was gonna be costly. So I'm like, no, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Maybe we leave the floors and we just, from the bottom, we prop everything up and it'll look like everything is fine. She's like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. I'm like, yes, ma'am. So she said, what we're gonna do, we're gonna tear all the floors out. Cha-ching. I'm like, okay. So we tear all the floors out. And sure enough, when we exposed what was underneath, all of the floor joists in the, in the kitchen were saturated. I mean, like wet and rotting. I'm like, well, not that bad. I mean, we probably like, maybe we leave it open for a while. We let it dry out a little bit and then we put a new floor down and then we can just jack everything up from underneath. That'd be much cheaper. And she's like, I don't speak cheap. I'm like, cool. So we tore everything out. All the floor joists came out and we had to put in all brand new floor joists because if we didn't do that, it would continue to rot and be detrimental to the structure in the long haul. If we didn't do the hard work of going down below the surface, exposing what was there, then we were actually having problems with our structure that wouldn't end there, and all of the work that we would do on the house would be for naught, because that would undermine everything. You see, in our lives, some of, the e some of us have sin that is so easily pinpointed for God to do the work that he needs to do. Like, we're fully aware of it. Somebody could ask us, we're like, yeah, this is, this is a thing. I know it's a problem for me, or whatever. Or maybe there's people in your family that would be like, yeah, that is a thing. It's, it's, it's like obvious. But some sin in our life is the kind of sin that has to go through the difficult uncovering in order for God to do the work that he wants to do. But either way, the goal remains the same. It's got to come out. It has to be removed for God to do the remodeling work that he wants to do because the old has to go so that the new can come in. So the gossip that we easily fall into, it's gotta be removed. The exposure to pornography has to be removed. The prejudice that we hold in our hearts has to be removed. The worship that we do at the feet of political agenda must be removed. The hatred and the bitterness that eats at our soul, it must be removed. The grudges we hold must be removed. The, the disregard for the poor and the marginalized among us must be removed. The adulterous relationships that are kept hidden have to be removed. The disbelief that clouds our faith has to be removed. The excessive lives that we live with money, power, food, popularity, 
has to be removed. The desensitivity that we have to evil all around us on our phones, our computers, our television screens, they must be removed. Because if we don't, they are sagging floor joists that undermine the structure and the lives and the blueprints of the creator, what God is trying to do within our lives. If they are left to remain there, they will undermine the good work that God is doing within us. So to be clear, this is incredibly uncomfortable. Because it costs something. Cha-ching. To do the hard work of digging these things out and exposing these things, no one likes to face their flaws. No one likes to divulge their dysfunction. No one wants to do it. So the temptation is, for me and for you, and I feel it, is to just let it remain. We'll just prop things up. It'll look like everything's fine. We'll get the floors back level. We can't do that. Because 2 Corinthians Corinthians says, if you're a new creation, the old has to go, so it makes room for the new to come in. The early church in Rome found itself tempted to do the same thing, to just keep sin, to embrace sin, to normalize it as a part of life, or worse yet, to continue to sin, because as we continue to sin, God's grace will increase. And so here's what Paul writes to them in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul asks a rhetorical question in chapter six. What do you say we just keep on sinning? What do you say we just kind of embrace all that's going on? Because, hey, if sin increases, so does God's grace, and that's a good thing, right? And his response is this, no, no. We cannot continue in sin, he says, because we have been baptized with Christ. So he takes this imagery of Jesus' death on the cross, being laid into a tomb. It's the very reason we do baptism in a church. As we go under the water, we identify with Jesus' death and burial in the tomb. And as we come back out of the water, we identify with Jesus' rising, triumphal rising from the grave to go and to walk in new life. Paul says we can't continue in sin. We're dead to sin. It's what Jesus has freed us from. So... If we identify with Jesus through his victorious resurrection from the grave, sin cannot remain in the life of the believer. It must be ever and always sought out and aggressively removed. So I, I want to I sit here this morning just for a moment because it's the essence of the gospel. I find many times people want to talk about something else. We're like, yeah, but, but what else? There's nothing else. This is it. This is why Jesus came, that he might remove from us the very thing that would destroy us. And so this morning, I want to invite just for a moment for God's spirit just to speak to us, to search our hearts, to expose the places that need to be removed. It's something called repentance. And it's not just being sorry It's not just feeling bad. Repentance is different. It's a changing of a person's mind. It's a changing of direction. 
So I used to think about this thing this way, but now I'm, I'll repent and I'll agree with God. I'll think about things this way. I used to travel this direction. This is the way my life was headed, the trajectory of my life, but instead I want to repent and go a different direction. That's repentance. And that's what's re required for the remodeling work for God to do within our lives. And so this morning, just for a moment, I want to let the Spirit of God search our hearts and know us. To poke and to prod into uncomfortable areas for this end goal, that he would change our minds, that we might agree with him. That we would change our direction, that we might walk in the way that he walks. So I'd invite you just for a moment, just to close your eyes and open yourselves up to the Spirit of God to point out the places that he wants to remove in order to remodel. Would you just take a moment and be silent before him? Open yourself up to him. Breathe on us, breath of God. May your spirit search us and know us. Expose the places within us, God, that, that rot, that will destroy the structure that you're trying to build within our lives, that will keep us from being the man, the woman, the husband, the wife, the person that you're calling us to be. In humility, God, we come before you now and we confess our sin before you. That you might take the old and bring something new. So God, this morning, I confess my need for your grace. I confess that there are places in my life where I am prideful. Would you remove it? I confess, God, there are places in my life where I'm fearful. Would you remove it? And I confess that in my life, God, there are places where I don't believe that you can do the things you said you would do. Would you remove it? So God, I pray that your presence would be thick in the room right now. And I pray, Father, that we would respond to you that we would repent, we would confess. So as we're in this space, just for a moment, if you feel like the Spirit of God is impressing upon your heart just to confess, I would invite you out loud, boldly, just confess that you are in need of God's grace. Would you say it out loud? We confess we're in need of your grace, Jesus. Don't be afraid, just speak it out if you need it. God, we are in need of your grace today. Would you do the work that only you can do to make us the people that you want us to be? Would you remove from us the sin that hinders and that holds us back? It's in your name that we pray. And so everyone together said, amen. So the renovating work.
that God does in our life, it first involves removal of sin. But also the renovating work that God does in our life, it involves revelation. It's not just removal of sin, but it's revelation. The removal of sin transforms people into the people that God wants for them to be. But as you look throughout the scriptures, you also realize that there is revelation from God teaching people about who he is and what he's like. And it forms them and it shapes them. From Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to the end of scriptures, God, God always is teaching and revealing himself to people anew and afresh. God speaks to them in person. He sends prophets and judges. He inspires authors to write letters. And ultimately and finally, he reveals himself through the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what God looks like, you need to look no further than the incarnation, Jesus himself. And this learning, this revelation throughout the scriptures, it impacts his followers. It changes the people of God. There's a trajectory of change from beginning to end as they see God more, more and more clearly. Now, God doesn't reveal himself just for information. He reveals himself for transformation. That's the point. God reveals himself that we might be transformed and remodeled from the inside out. God continually works in this way for people's sake and for the sake of the world. So as Jesus shows up on the scene in the book of John, in the book of Matthew, the Gospels, John the Baptist's disciples, they've been following John for a certain time, and John has been telling them about this Messiah who's one day going to come. And John's talking about Jesus. But there's this point in Matthew chapter 9 where these disciples come to speak to Jesus, John's disciples. And Jesus recognizes they don't fully understand the changes that his life, death, and resurrection are about to bring to the world. They're a bit confused on things. So he invites them and gives them a better understanding of who he is and what he's bringing to the table. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 16 through 17. Jesus says to these disciples, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on old garments, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear even worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If you do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he says, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both will be preserved. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking two different images to help teach these disciples that he's not some accessory that you can just add on to an old way of living. Like he's not just some add-on to this whole way the Jewish system has worked before this. Jesus is saying, I am what this whole thing is about. The whole sacrificial system was pointing to this guy. Everything that's ever been said by the prophets in the law was pointing to this guy. And so Jesus says, you can't just take an old piece of cloth and put it, or a new piece of cloth and put it on an old garment. They'll tear from each other and they'll make it even worse. You can't take new wine, this new understanding of what God's doing in the world and put it into old wineskins. It'll cause it to burst. Jesus says, you put new wine into new wineskins, a new way of understanding, a new way of existing, and in doing so, both are preserved. You see, God is a mysterious God. We are limited in our understanding of a divine and eternal being as mortal people, not to say that we can't know anything about God, and not to say that our comprehension can't grow about him, but that's the whole point of Revelation, we learn more about him the more we study the scriptures and the more that we open ourselves to the spirit. If you were to ask Eli Miller, my son, when he was three years old, what does your dad do for a job? 
Here's what he'd probably say. Something like, well, my dad sits in an office all day. He makes phone calls and he types emails and eats little white and red, you know, mints and does whatever Frida Earhart, the secretary of the church, tells him to do. <laughs> Which isn't, you know, completely false, but it's a limited understanding of my job and what I do. And if you were to ask Eli when he was 20 years old, what does your dad do? He might say something like, well, my dad helps families in the church and the community thrive. He studies the scriptures and he, and he teaches the Bible. He still eats the little white and red mints because they're really good. And he still does whatever Frida Earhart tells him to do. But it's a better understanding of what I do. And here's the thing. My job has never changed. My son has. My son has. There's something that happens when we allow ourselves to read the Bible and study the scriptures. When we open ourselves up to the spirit of God. The longer that we live in a relationship with God, we should be transformed and changed as our understanding changes about who he is. God never changes. But guess what? We do. And so as a father now, I understand better what it means for God to be our father than I did when I was a college student. I just didn't have the frame of reference, the life experience to understand that. My life has transformed where my compassion and grace for people in my heart has expanded tenfold because I've realized the kind of heart that God has for the broken world. My life has been transformed as I have come to realize that racial reconciliation is not just a side conversation in the scriptures. It is central to living as the people of God. Among many things, these are ways that my life has changed. The more that I've understood who God is, the more that I've searched the scriptures, the more that I've awakened to him. The revelation of God, the one that remodels us, is a mixture of life experience, spiritual awakening, and primarily the wrestling with scripture. This is why it is so important to engage in God's word for yourself. Do not get your theology from TikTok. Do not get your theology from Instagram or Facebook. Do the hard work of wrestling with these things on your own, living in awe of how amazing and mysterious and holy and other God is, and at the same time living with a humble fact that he has indeed revealed himself to us through creation, through scripture, through Jesus himself, and through people around us. We can know more about God. And the more that we know about God, the more that we transform and become like Jesus himself. A Christian who is actively fighting against sin and continually growing in their understanding of, of God is a person who's building a foundation on Jesus. That foundation will stand. This morning, though, there's a bit of a caution that I do want to bring to the table when it comes to remodeling. Because sometimes in our haste to remove all kinds of things that get in the way of our relationship with God, we must be careful not to confuse reconstruction with deconstruction. They're two different things. I've grown up my entire life in a family of, of contractors and builders. My dad's a builder, my grandfather's a builder, and so my grandmother, my mom, and my wife love living in homes that are always under construction. Not, but it's a part of life in the Miller family. Because we're always asking questions, like if in this house, what can we possibly do? What can we move here? What if we took that wall out? Would that open up more light into this room? If we move this wall, would it make more space for people to be able to sit around tables? If we move this wall, would it make it a little more cozy in here? But there's a question that has to be asked before you really seriously consider any of those things. Is that wall what? Load-bearing. Meaning, if I were to take that wall and take it out of the house, is it meant to be there to hold all of the weight that sits on it? 
Because if I take that wall out of the house, if I'm not careful, I will do a disservice to the rest of the home. And potentially the structure could fall. So load-bearing walls have to be paid attention to. And so when it comes to this work that God is doing within our life, I think we have to pay attention to the same things. Be mindful of load-bearing walls. Since the beginning of the church, the culture surrounding it has always pressured it to abandon core beliefs and compromise convictions, to move certain walls here and there. And though it's certainly not a new thing, it's happened for a long, long time, it's certainly a part of our life as a Christian today. And Peter addresses this in a letter that he writes to uh, some pe- people in the early church in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, here's what he says. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies and even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So Peter has a hard word here for the early church. He's like, listen, you need to be aware of something. Peter calls them false teachers because in the early church, there were people that were bringing all kinds of new understandings into the early church and the things that Jesus had taught and saying, hey, listen, let's move the wall a little bit right here. Let's change this out just a little bit. But these things that Peter points out were load-bearing walls for the church. And the first one was this. Peter says, be careful because there are some people who are trying to convince you that Jesus is not who he says he was. The words that Peter used uses is to question whether or not he bought them. What he's talking about is Jesus' death on the cross. Some were wanting the early church to question whether Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for them, for salvation. But to Peter, and I would agree, to not have Jesus as supreme, as Lord and Savior, as the only way to the Father, as the full revelation of God, as the author and perfecter of our faith, to have those things removed, they are load-bearing walls that all of our faith relies upon. And to move them would cause, would seriously jeopardize the structure altogether. So Peter says, be careful. Then Peter says, there's another thing that was being introduced into the church at that point in time. He says it was an abandoning of, of truth and righteousness for immoral activity. You see, the Bible's pretty clear on Christian ethics. One of the clearest things that is written within the scriptures about the way the Christians should live is in Galatians chapter five. In Galatians chapter five, verse 19 through 21, there's a list that's given by the writer that's expressing what it does not look like to live with the foundation of Christ. He says this, the acts of the flesh, they call it, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgy, and the like. He says these things, this was a a load-bearing wall that could not be moved within the early church. It was moral conduct, the way Christians ought to live. There was a high standard for the Christian. In fact, they go on to list the opposite in verse 22 through 23. The writer says this, but instead, your life should have these kinds of fruits within it. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. So Peter says, be very careful of things that are being taught. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the way of salvation and the only way to the Father. 
And there is a way that we ought to live. And to say something else would be something different altogether. Lastly, Peter then attacks one more load-bearing wall that the false teachers were trying to bring about. He says they're trying to exploit people for financial gain. Meaning, there were some outside the church who were coming and saying, listen, there's some secret information that you don't know anything about. I'd be happy to share it with you, but they were charging people for it. They were trying to take advantage of those who didn't know this secret information. These are three things that Peter is concerned about, but there are load-bearing walls within our church today that I believe are trying to be moved. The authority of Scripture is one of them. There's so much weight that hangs on that one fact. The divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God and not just a human being. He was an actual person who came to an actual people at an actual time. And so much weight hangs on that. There's faith. Our faith is by grace alone and not by works. It cannot be earned. There's weight that hangs on all of those. And if we're being remodeled by God in the middle of the removal of sin and the growth through deeper revelation about Jesus, we must live with a critical mind, but not a critical spirit. A critical mind, but not a critical spirit. As the Bible says, we must be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. In the book of Acts, we see this take place right in front of us. Paul and one of his helpers named Silas are being sent to a place called Berea. And they're being sent there because they have this message about Jesus and his resurrection. And there are some Jews there in Berea who are meeting in synagogues, and they're going there to tell them the good news about Jesus. So Paul and Silas show up in Berea. And here's what the Bible says in verse 17 of Acts. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. On arriving there in Macedonia, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, but then listen to this, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did many number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. So I love this passage. Paul and Silas show up. We got this great message about Jesus, and they receive it with eagerness, it says. But they do something very, very important. They receive it with eagerness, and they examine the scriptures to test and see if, in fact, what Paul and Silas was saying was actually true. My hope and prayer this morning is that anything that is said from this stage, this message will be received with eagerness but that we would do the hard work on our own to wrestle with the scriptures to determine whether indeed or not it is actually true. Is it true? Second Peter says we have to be careful because some of these things may be moved. Before we throw out portions of our faith, we would be wise to do a deep dive into the Bible considering how the authors within the scriptures first saw this thing or that thing. We'd be wise to consider how thousands of years of Christian scholarship has thought about these things. We'd be wise to take an honest look at how the world seems to work and function. We'd be wise to seek godly counsel from people who consistently live lives that look like Jesus. Because these load-bearing walls carry a lot of weight for our theological framework. And to remove them could cause us to throw our faith away altogether. But when all is said and done, deconstruction is not the end goal reconstruction is. Reconstruction. There's a television show that I love called Fixer Upper. Anybody else in the room? So this adorable couple, Joanna and Chip Gaines, they go throughout Waco remodeling homes and doing all these things. But people really love the show because of who? Chip, right? He's a goof. 
Like, when, if you've ever spent time with my dad, Phil Miller, he's Chip Gaines. So Chip Gaines, he's this goofy guy in the whole show, and he, just, he loves life, and you can tell it, but there's one day that Chip loves more than any other day, and it's called what? Demo day, right? Where he gets to tear everything out. So he jumps through drywall, and he like karate chops two by fours and all kinds of stuff, and it's the day you can tell on the show that Joanna's always nervous because he's gonna do something, you know, something dumb, tear something out he shouldn't, and something's gonna get messed up. But at the end of the show, you know what's gonna happen, right? They will finally have this beautiful reveal of this home after all the things were taken out and all these new things came in, boom, here you go. Here's your house, it's a fixer-upper, whatever. That's why people love the show. Like, nobody would watch Fixer Upper if the whole show was about Chip Gaines just destroying stuff. Maybe we would, I don't know. But people watch and love the show because you get to see at the very end the reconstruction that takes place. As certain things are taken out and new things come back in and the big reveal at the end, it's beautiful. This is what God is doing in the life of believers. He's removing things, sin, old ways of thinking. These things come out in order for God to make space for new things to come in, but he's making space for new things to come. Second Corinthians is very clear. If you are found in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things go away, but new things come. Like, no one would want to have a contractor come into their house who just tears stuff out and is like, well, see ya. That would be so frustrating because the whole goal of taking the things away is that they might be replaced with something beautiful. We all face situations and circumstances in our life that cause us to wrestle with our faith, to question things, and we should because people get sick and there's tragedies. Doubt creeps in. The church hurts people. There's all kinds of reasons to question these things. And when these things happen, there's really only two options. And for some, the conclusion is simply to say, I'll abandon it all. I'll tear it all out. But for others, they see God at work in the midst of all of it, reconstructing their faith in a way that is stronger, clearer, more genuine, and more honest. You see, the success of any con construction comes back to the contractor. Are they trustworthy? And everyone in the room probably has had some kind of experience before. You've had a contractor come in to do some work and there's been like big disappointment. It costs more than you thought it would. This thing didn't exactly go the way. They never show up. But I believe the scriptures tell us that we have a contractor for our life in Jesus who is trustworthy, who knows how to build to the blueprint, who knows how to remove things in order to bring new things into our life. And he is trustworthy with our lives to make us the kind of people that he wants us to be. So this morning as we close, we're gonna sing one final song. I would just invite you just to kind of have your hearts and your minds open to what God wants to do this morning. Maybe so, some ways of confession and repentance. Maybe some reconciliation that needs to take place in the room. Maybe someone next to you need to have a conversation with, do it this morning. If you wanna come and pray at the front of this altar as we sing, please do so. Let's move as the Spirit leads us today. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for meeting us right where we are. And I pray this morning, Father, as we are open and honest with you, that you would envelop us with your love. Remind us that you are trustworthy and you know what you're doing. And I pray, Father, that you would transform lives and make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.